maybe we should start with just has the role of statistics in science, and we can say maybe the hard sciences versus the social sciences, we can start wherever we want, has the role that statistics plays in scientific inference and scientific discovery, is it in the process of changing right now? I don't know how much the role has changed, but I wanted to say that statistics plays two roles in science. One role is that statistics allows scientists to get more out of their data, uh, to learn more and make discoveries from their data. Also, statistical methods can be used to protect scientists from fooling themselves based on noise. And I guess I should say one other thing, because those are both statistical inference but statistics is also involved in um, design and, and data collection as well. Yeah, I think that's one of the uh, main uh, sort of bastions of strength that statistics has had. As you know, there's a lot of other, uh, I'm not quite sure alternative is the right word, but there, there's other areas in where people are doing data analysis. Data science is one term, uh, you know, machine learning, AI, and obviously these are fairly, they're related in many ways. But um, one of the places where statisticians have always said that like one of our strengths are is when we're doing things like experimental design, because this is a field where it's very rich in understanding of experimental design and have gone through a lot of these different, um, I guess, uh, applications of experimental design. So it, is that correct? Is that is that what you're talking about when we're talking about, you know, uh, the role that statistics plays in experimentation? Well, design and, and data collection and measurement and all sorts of things. Like just all the things that happen before you get to the analysis. Mm -hmm. What about um? So, for example, uh, so we we if um is it so if we are going to divide it between things like uh statistical inference versus um uh things like more like the experimental design side. If we're thinking about statistical inference, is this one of the places where statistics does seem to be changing a bit? Where there are um I wouldn't again I wouldn't say alternative forms of inference, but people are making inference from data. And they may or may not be using statistically sound methods. Um, however, people might be doing things that are useful. Megan? Um, yeah. Well, I guess I think that my um, my take is I don't think that statistics got to a place where it was, wasn't changing. I mean, I think, yeah. I think it has been continually changing mm -hmm. and that's to be expected and should be the case. But I think it's really important to point out how different it is across different disciplines, which I feel like is a... Um, um, bringing bringing statisticians into the kind of conversation about how we practice science has changed or what counts as science, I think is important because we are applied statisticians are seeing these different um, norms of scientific practice and statistical and use of statistical inference and methods in these separate um, you know, disciplines and separate norms. So um, that's not quite answering your question, but I just think, I think it is just an important um, it does provide a perspective on the kind of whole process of doing science to see, to go in and get these little glimpses of, oh, they're doing this in psychology and they're doing this in ecology and they're doing this in the health sciences. And, and so then in the, and really this story that you're asking about how things have changed over time is really different within each one of these yeah. paths. Yeah, actually, that reminds me very quickly, and I'm going to bungle this description a bit, but I was looking through um, some old econometrics textbooks that I had, and it was interesting that um, the uh, assumptions where if you look at, uh, say, for example, uh, uh, some of these models that they have in econometrics versus my uh, just traditional uh, statistics textbooks, where um, the assumptions that they had about the data obviously have certain implications 
uh, with regard to the model. And so the types of claims that they're making from these, what well, would be essentially the same model, but because you have certain assumptions about the data, that it was it was effectively changing the interpretation that they're having. And um, I guess the thing that popped in my head was it wasn't always clear which assumptions they were making at all times. So it seemed like um, I could just basically going all the way back into my like undergraduate brainstem that um, there are things where there are a large number of uh, assumptions that uh, some of these econometrics models had about their data that other statistical fields weren't holding as assumptions and that they did affect the uh, interpretation in some ways. Um, and I thought that was interesting because I remember being not so clear on what those assumptions were at the time I was meant to be learning them, which might've been why I suffered so much uh, early on. Well, a lot of statistical methods were developed for designed experiments. So mm -hmm. for example, in economics, you might have a product that you're selling um, over several weeks. And each week you have the price of the product and your sales. And you might want to model like to say, what would happen if I lower my price? How much would sales go up? So I can model my price and my sales. And then you might say, we'll also include some something about seasonality and maybe they sell more over Christmas and, and so forth. But then it turns out that what the biggest factor other than the price driving sales is your competitor's price. And you don't have that. So mm -hmm. you're making... By doing all this other modeling, you're kind of ignoring that or implicitly assuming it's a constant. And that wouldn't come up in a designed experiment, um, but it comes up in, in real life because you're setting your price. Your, your competitor might be setting their price in response to your price. So that's a little bit different than an agricultural experiment where you, you're worried about natural variation of soil fertility or, or whatever. Or the bees. Got to worry about yeah, those bees. The bees causing interactions. So the point is that like, mathematically, all of these assumptions are there, but in practice, some of the assumptions just don't like get get activated just like automatically, and some become more important than than others in context. Cool. Actually, that reminds me. Maybe this is too much of a tangent. Oh, sorry, Megan. Did you want to say something? No, no, no. Go ahead. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, I was it. Um, was it Lactose's book where he essentially started with um, like a basically uh, a, a mathematical, like a single mathematical assumption and the implications it had? And then as you want to grow out and um, basically create a more all-encompassing uh, description that um, he essentially start adding on more caveats and you have more like axioms that are required to support that. Um, am, I, am I getting that wrong, I think? Yeah, I think that's about right. I mean, I would say like... A mathematical theorem um, is a bunch of conditions and, and a proof, uh, but depending on what you want to prove, that it affects the conditions of the theorem. So mm -hmm. in class, you might think that you start with a bunch of assumptions and then you deductively make the proof, but often the deduction runs the other way, that there's something that's true in a certain setting, and then you have to figure out what assumptions are necessary um, for that to be true. So the value of the proof is not to demonstrate that something's true, but rather to kind of very precisely delineate what you need to assume for that to happen. Yeah, I think that is a really, uh, it's, it's an important thing that uh, I think that also when, especially when we're busy learning these things. So when we are in undergraduate and graduate school and busy learning some of these things to begin with, that um, we... Uh, we think that effectively the way that a lot of the work is presented, it's that um, 
people are magically deducing these things from a set of assumptions that came from, you know, magical unicorn land, where it's just like, or from the raw genius of the person who came up with the proof, as opposed to they actually worked it the other way. And it's like, okay, I've done this analysis. Um, it, it, it works in this way. And now how do I protect what I've said? What do I have? What caveats and stipulations do I need? Um, to actually make sure that I'm saying something that is true, or at least true within some bounds, uh, true some portion of the time. Um, Megan, is it, does yeah. that does that seem right to you? Yeah, I, I think I, I think I agree with that. And I actually had when I kind of jotted some notes down before this. Um, yeah, coming back discussing assumptions, I think is it has to be a place where we go for um, you know having a deep discussion about science and non-science or pseudoscience or mm-hmm. whatever the, the um, gradation is there. Um, and I think that in, you know, across disciplines within and use of statistical methods, like even that is just fascinating as a statistician to sit down at the table with researchers from different disciplines and see what, um, you know, just even asking what they're, what, what assumptions they think they're bringing to the table or the mm-hmm. ones that they actually are going to check versus not, which is kind of like the point you were making about the, um, um, the economists. Um, and so I, I think that like a key aspect across, um, scientific work is just this ability to, um, explicitly state assumptions in a meaningful way and also be able to interrogate those assumptions. And I think that that's really what I see in, a, um, or what I worry about, I guess, in, um, in, in a lot of the fields that I've worked with researchers in is really this kind of, uh, textbook, acceptance of, oh, well, I check normality, I check constant variance, I check, I say they're met and I go ahead, which isn't a real checking of um, deep foundational assumptions of what we're doing. And I feel like, like back to your question of how statistics has changed, like in my, uh, my opinion, I feel like that, 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 that idea of just the superficial check, mm-hmm. that this is what we're going to use and we're going to do this superficial check seems to be just kind of gathering momentum and it's like the further we get away from maybe those statistical foundations in that experimental design like the more is lost in terms of kind of some deep underlying foundations i'm generalizing here but like based on my experiences talking to researchers well i agree let's take an example of what might be the most consequential scientific error of the past 20 years um, you can let me pause for a minute. You can try to think of what you think is the most consequential scientific error of the past 20 years, and then I'll tell you the one I have in mind. Um, what I have in mind was the study by Reinhardt and Rogoff, the economists who claimed a certain consequence of public debt. I think this was a paper that came out in 2009, maybe, and it turned out this was also known as the Excel error paper because it turned out that they made a mistake in their analysis by shifting two columns in an Excel spreadsheet. And I'd say this is, there are lots of famous scientific errors. Like there was the paper that claimed that Cornell students had extrasensory perception. And there were the um, papers by the food scientist where apparently he, he made up his data and he sucked in a few million dollars of government funds while making up data. There are various things like that, but maybe the none of those were as consequential as this um, economics paper, which was used to justify economic austerity plans. 
So we could ask, what's the role of statistics there? Like statistics was involved because it was, it was not merely a, a theoretical statement um, or a set of anecdotes. They were doing a statistical analysis. Um, in some sense, statistics were involved about in the, about the same way that Excel, the spreadsheet, was involved. <laughs> Excel was involved because it was a way for the researchers to handle their data without having to like compute a bunch of things in a calculator. And statistics was there in order to allow them to make a perhaps a more organized presentation of their conclusions. Um, you could argue. I mean, we could argue maybe convincingly that that the existence of the existence of statistics made things worse there because it gave a kind of scientific air to something that was wrong now in this case it wasn't wrong because of a statistical error it was wrong because of a data error but there like at the very least there is something wrong with your analysis if you're focusing on everything but the numbers in your data and Statistics is often, and not in a bad way, about the averages rather than the specific cases. But in this case, there weren't that many specific cases. And it would seem that the analysis of averages was a bit of a distraction um, that allowed the researchers to, to miss what was going on. Yeah, I think that that's a nice follow-up, and that was one of the one of the kind of underlying assumptions is that use of averages or means, just like a default. Oh, we're just going to model means because that's what that's what we do. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that point of Andrews, and then I think I love that you said um, statistics gives a kind of scientific air to things. So that is something that I am actually worried about in the in the process, and I think that this actually happens maybe more than we than we think. I think there is a like, oh, they used a statistical analysis, they're statistical results, and therefore it looks it looks very uh, scientific to those who don't have the background to be able to critically evaluate it. And I think it does actually take away from some of the um, evaluation or critical evaluation or interrogating of um, not only methods, but the conclusions that come out of that. Um, so I'm not, I'm definitely not anti-statistics, but I think we do need to have a, take a more, um, cautionary um, attitude toward toward it, um, especially when we are going forward without really digging into the deeper foundational assumptions. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just quickly follow that. I don't think that anyone uh, on this call is probably at risk of being confused as being anti-statistics. <laughs> um, although if we had to nominate someone, it's probably Andrew. Um, but, you know. <laughs> well, there's, I want to pick up on something Megan said um, because like you, we get a, a a feedback loop, a, a kind of bad feedback loop, which which is a, a feedback loop of overconfidence. So statistics can be misused to give people the impression that they're discovering large effects, even when they're not really there. Um, well, that's not just statistics's fault, right? People people want that, so it's kind of. People are using statistics to get what they want. But the trouble is once there's an ex expectation of large effects, then it, it goes forward. So people will get like, they'll do a grant proposal and they'll say, well, we propose to discover this big effect. And they do a power calculation for their study, which is large enough to discover a very large effect. Now, there's something we call the Armstrong principle named after Lance, 
which is if you promise something you can't deliver, you're motivated to cheat. And so not that people are out there cheating, but they're in a position where they expect to see effects, even if they're, they shouldn't be expecting to see that. Um, and that's not a good position to be in. You don't really want to be promising to have to create a stream of discoveries. And I was thinking about this recently with respect to social science and some other science. Suppose you're a medical scientist, you're a medical researcher, and you decide you want to cure some form of cancer and you're successful. You're, you're smart. You have good, you have a lot of good ideas. You're good in the lab. You do lots of little things that are useful, that are good. Like you, you come up with better um, you know, better ways of doing certain treatments, you evaluate things, you're like a very productive member of the scientific community. You also have big ideas, and because you're good, you're persuasive, you get government funding, and for a 40-year career, you develop your ideas. And after 40 years, it turns out they didn't work, right? Like you thought you could cure the cancer by tricking the cell into do blah, 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 it didn't work. You wouldn't feel like... I feel like if that was me, I'd feel a little regret, but I wouldn't feel I wasted my life. I would say, well, look, I tried a good idea and it was worth it. It didn't work, but somebody had to try this path and it was a scientific failure. It's not a moral failure and we've learned something. But I feel like in a lot of science, including actually medical and biological sciences, but often social sciences, people won't like ever admit that they're wrong. Like, you won't you won't get someone saying, yeah, I spent 40 years on this idea and it was a bad idea, but you know, that's the way it goes. Like, like people should recognize that that's at least a possibility. And certainly when they ask for funding, they recognize things won't necessarily work, but sometimes it seems like they don't really believe it might not work. So that like, it does seem that you have to have the possibility of failure. Like there's an expression, you know, they say it's called research when you don't know what you're doing. Right. And like in our society, we, 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 we celebrate risk takers, but like risk taker means you might lose, you know, you have to accept that. Yeah. I think uh, one of these elements though, is that when your research does not uh, pan out in some way there, it isn't like you're only losing. It's not like the, uh, it, there's a correlated hit that you take, which is not only there's is just research that you panned out, uh, like did you effectively not spend your time well, but there's other things in there too. For example, uh, scientists and people who do research um, are generally associated with, for example, being intelligent and things like that. And so when you when your research uh, findings take a hit, it's not just that the research itself is taking a hit; it's that there's these these add-on effects. I think that, you know, psychologically affect us. For example, it's like, well, now you feel less intelligent. Like you should have found, you should have identified that problem, even if it were maybe um, insurmountable or you could not have possibly predicted that. So I think that there are elements of this where um, it sort of feels like when your research output um, takes some type of um, sort of prestige hit, that there are knock-on effects too that will influence people. And um, especially if you don't feel like you have the time to recover, where, you know, if you do uh, research for 40 years and your research output takes a hit, you don't have another 40 years to, you know, go back and correct that work. Um, it's sort of like, actually, if you think um, a lot of like, uh, you know, anthropologists in the uh, 20th century, prominent, you know, very prominent academics in their field 
uh, found their work taking very large hits, um, where when, um, as like genetic information came in, alternative theories about, for example, how civilizations arose, whether it was from, uh, you know, um, around like, for example, uh, river-based agriculture and things like that, um, that uh, a lot of very prominent uh, academics in other fields eff- effectively saw their own research work washed away overnight. Um, which is maybe why uh, people, for example, who are studying evolutionary biology and things like that right now, um, they are much more robust to large overturns in the field. Uh, for example, uh, some of the uh, discoveries they made about uh, is that the Denisovans, um, the uh, Denisovan uh, hominids in, uh, in Russia now, uh, you know, obviously that's, that's a massive turning in the field. And um, having maybe had to deal with those types of uh, problems in the past, people are a bit more robust and uh, able, able to handle those psychologically. There's obviously a very large psychological component to that. I feel like I've now uh, beat that one a little bit too much, Megan. Sorry. No, I was going to say, I mean, just with Andrew's story, but I don't know that there was the kid's story of the researcher working on that for 40 years doesn't necessarily mean there was something to go back and correct, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that it was wrong or that the researcher wasn't doing something right, but that willingness to to not have the story turn out happily, to not Mm -hmm. have a happy ending at the end, right, is... Um, I think is huge to how we're doing science and our culture, just like you've said, our culture and our survival as um, scientists in this current culture is, it is a personal thing more than it should be, I guess, or more well, than is, what Andrew's story had kind of. Well, it is predicated. Part of our bit is like <laughs> the reason that people listen to scientists is the idea that it's not just that we're saying something, it's we're saying something and we're correct. You know, the, the, there's this, there's this idea that like uh, by and large, if you listen to a scientist on the topic of their expertise, uh, that you know you're going to have a good you're going to have a good running average on correctness, and I think that that's the bit um, where um, you know obviously that's where it becomes personal. That's why there are knock on effects when you knock on somebody's correctness. It, it is sort of the underlying foundation. It is something of a foundational upheaval, or if we'll all use attack loosely, but yeah, it's a foundational attack that has a multitude of um, knock-on effects. Yeah, and I guess that gets to the thinking about individuals in the scientific process versus groups in the scientific process too, like how that how that comes about. But the uh, maybe just backing up um, a minute, I guess one thing I was um, thinking about, the, the statistics can, or the, the use of statistics can take away a, an expectation to justify um, results and methods at a deeper level, which maybe could prevent some of the, like the, the stories, even the Excel, um, Excel miss up and, and other, the ESP study example there, I think there are a lot of situations where, okay, the stats is thrown out there. The results are thrown out there regardless of method used. And so that's kind of where the conversation ends instead of following up questions that would happen if there were, um, a more, like know, a hypothesis-driven, holistic, like yeah. Um, I just think we put too much of the conversation on that. On the how stats. how would this? I will do a dangerous thing. I'm going to stick my hand out a bit and make sort of a claim, and uh, we'll see how it gets mauled. And I, I would actually appreciate uh, some feedback on this idea. Where um, there is um, the term, you know, data-driven science. I think it's quite popular because people, it has a good feeling to it, a good gut feeling. It's like, yeah, well, of course we want our science based on data. You know, what else would we base it on? Um, 
But my concern about data-driven science is that effectively it's being used as an alternative to more uh, heavily hypothesis-driven science. And where um, there are many ways that data can lead us astray. You know, obviously, I earn my bread analyzing data on a day-to-day basis. Like, that, that's that's how I do my stuff. Um, but at the same time, I don't let the data drive the car. They don't get to access, they at most get one hand on the steering wheel, and the other one is strong hypotheses, uh, logical deduction, and understanding of the uh, data generating mechanisms, which should at least, like, you know, I, a logical understanding of that is just as important to understanding data is just letting the data speak for itself in many ways. Um, and at the same time, obviously, don't let your assumptions uh, get in the way of your data. So I think, um, actually, it reminds me of, uh, I think, something uh, one of Andrew's definitions where it's like, if you're having computational errors, there's probably something wrong with your model specification, or there, there's some mismatch between your model and the data if you're having severe computational errors. But um, the theorem of statistical computing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess, uh, so I, I've sort of put out a hypothesis there, which is, you know, this data-driven science versus a more hypothesis-driven science. And I'm not sure if I have those terms particularly correct, but at least they fit nicely in my head. Um, and they seem to relate to what you guys have been talking about. I think there's a role for different different ways of going about it. Mm-hmm. So I can tell you a story. Years ago, um, my, my, my PhD advisor is a statistician, but he had earlier been a, a psychology stu- student before he went to statistics. I was working with him on a problem involving, um, well, it had to do with modeling, comparing schizophrenics to non-schizophrenics. And he was there looking at uh, delay times in eye tracking. And yeah. we fit a statistical model and he, he fit a mixture of normal distributions. There's a reason I'm going into the details. So there's mm-hmm. a mixture of normals. Um, well, on, on the log scale, because like we're not idiots, right? So we have um, like your reaction time follows a log normal distribution. Different people have different reaction times. Um, schizophrenics, um, some schizophrenics have occasional delayed reaction times. Some don't. The ones who have occasional delays, their, their data would look like a mixture of some observations with a certain reaction time and then some with a delay. And even the non-delayed reaction times could be different for the schizophrenics and non-schizophrenics. So we, we set up a hierarchical model, and I actually got involved in, in the computational end of it because we're fitting a model, and he, they, they had an iterative algorithm, and they wanted to assess um, whether it converged. But when looking into it, I noticed that the data didn't look well, the data did the, for the non-schizophrenics looked reasonably close to a normal distribution on the log scale. But when you looked at the log reactions for the schizophrenics, they didn't look bimodal or like a mixture of normals. What they kind of looked like was like a normal distribution with then a very long tail to the right. Well, of course, that makes sense. If schizophrenics are sometimes delayed in their responses, the amount of the delay will itself be random. So if you were to take a, start with a normal distribution and then add on a delay, but let the delay be random, then you'll, you won't get something that looks like two. You won't necessarily get something that looks like a mixture of two normals. You'll get something with a, like a long right tail. So I, I said that to him. I said, I don't think this model is, is really right. And he said, I don't care. And I said, why don't you care? And he said, well, what, the, what they really, what the psychologists want to do is like look at this delay. And if they had all the direct data, meaning that they knew which component 
each observation was in, whether it's delayed or not, then they would just look at the difference between them and they would do an analysis of variance. That's what they really care about. The goal, and so he said, my goal is not to model the data. Um, I want to just estimate what they want to estimate um, because they have good reasons for doing this. And like, like, so he wasn't saying there was anything wrong with modeling the data. I mean, of course, he recognized that it would be more statistically efficient to have a model that fits the data. And then you can always go back and get quantities of interest corresponding to average delay times. You don't need a normal distribution to do that. His point was that wasn't where he wanted to be putting his effort. Um, so it was interesting. And, and I think it's a matter of taste. So statisticians tend to be more interested in modeling the data. Economists are, tend to be less interested in the data and more interested in some underlying pattern. Um, sometimes when you talk about like physics or biology, really people only care about the underlying pattern. The data are means to an end and the measurement process just isn't so important. Um, you know, that said, you can learn a lot from, from just staring at data. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in the data, but like these are different perspectives one, one can have. And, and I think they, they can all be useful. It's good to have a, a pluralism of researchers who, who have different focuses. Megan, did you want to follow up? Yeah, uh, yeah. Because actually, uh, when when we were talking a bit earlier about the averages, it reminded me of that story that uh, you had said about uh, 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 the, your Don Room story about that. Uh, and um, anyway, I, I didn't I didn't bring it up at the time, but now I guess yeah, I got brought up. So um, I thought that that was interesting. Sorry, Megan, before I inter interrupted you. No, no, that's really fun. Um, yeah, I guess I kind of have a. Uh, well, I don't know if it's a similar story, but. Um, Actually, my the way that I came to studying statistics was actually um, from another science. I was actually getting a PhD in um, motor control, how our brains control, our bodies control movement um, and biomechanics and working in a lab um, there. And it was actually the questions that arose for me in terms of how we were using um, statistics in doing that science that led me to, and I realized I had no idea what it bothered me, but I had no idea what the answers were, which I still don't, but that's what <laughs> uh, sent me to, sent me to stats. But as part of that, so one of the things that really bothered me, I think gets at your question of this hypothesis versus data driven. So they would do, we, we did a lot of experiments, um, and had a lot of data available. And in the, my cohort of PhD students, I kind of came to realize that most of them were going to get their PhDs by just using data that were already collected. So they were kind of coming up with, I mean, it wasn't completely coming up with the hypotheses posts like by looking at the data, but it was like, okay, well, here's another question. And I think we can repurpose the data that we have to address this question. And then this person can like take that for their PhD. And at the time, I just like, it fundamentally bothered me that they could get a PhD in this discipline without having to go through the process of designing, a, like starting from a question, um, looking at what else was there, looking at maybe the, the, other, the other data to help um, inform where you're going to go, but not doing any of the design or like where are the data coming from and how are we going to do this and that piece of it. Instead, they're skipping right to the analysis step. And, um, and then the focus of their dissertation is really stats on um, already collected data. And the hypothesis part is kind of is like there, but it's like not is integrally connected, um, and especially through the design. So anyway, it's just kind of interesting that that's like, that problem is basically the thing that sent me 
to uh, get my degrees in statistics to begin with. I have a story that I know you'll love. Uh, Years ago, somebody came to my office and they said, we want to design a study to blah, 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 blah. And I said, stop right there. And, And they said, why? And I said, because one thing statisticians love to do is say, to tell people, you came to us too late. If only you could come to us in the design stage, it would have solved your problem. So don't come to me in the design stage because then I won't be able to say that. <laughs> yeah, so uh, is it, we're getting off on the wrong foot. <laughs> my, my, my best complaint. Um, right, right. Exactly. The biggest of my complaints. I need, I need that alibi, like the position of like, like Donald Trump if they count all the votes or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so if we... Uh, is it, if, if, if we if we start here, I will not have any excuses if anything right. goes wrong down the line. Um, exactly, and that is unacceptable. Right. Um, yeah. It's like that is not a sufficient condition. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It actually uh, um, reminded me a bit um, because one of the things, one of the big sort of demarcations I see in sort of uh, the scientific competence of many people, in machine learning is obviously. Um, I complain about machine learning is that many people, we are not uh, creating explicit experiments for a lot of these things. Or if we do, it's only after a very long process. And I would say one, um, ignoring sort of the A-B testing of the thing and the big tech things where they do do that testing a lot. But like machine learning, the biological sciences, you know, we aren't going to be... Uh, we aren't going to be running an experiment for every machine learning algorithm that monitors a patient. Um, and so one of the challenges is uh, that we need to design these experiments and typically we uh, design an algorithm to detect certain a certain type of physiology if they even bother to specify that i think some of the field doesn't even do that sometimes um but the uh the one of the big challenges is to actually take this data which is only i guess partially fit for purpose and how to curate it and design it into a way that could be reasonably viewed as a good sort of first experiment you know a first like a testing uh process and there's some people who put a lot of effort and work into this and a lot of people who essentially just chug the analysis, write their publication and move on with their day. And, um, but those considerations are important. And I I just want to say like, it did remind me that uh, what what you've discussed is, I think there's a very good place for people who can take uh, data that is not designed explicitly for the hypotheses you're trying to test and still curate it in a way that doesn't seem too bad, and you know, at least gives you a straight uh, a way forward. But Andrew, is that wrong or? Um, oh, you know, you haven't said anything wrong yet. Um, <laughs> Give me time. It, it reminds me of something. Um, so, the statistics is sometimes said to be the science of defaults, and so what's funny is like there, there's two. We have a, a, a statistical workflow, which is how to solve a particular problem, but then we also have a research workflow, which is how to develop a statistical method. And as statisticians, even when we're working on singular problems, we tend to bounce back and forth between that. Um, And in a way that scientists don't always do. So in in some ways that like, I I have like data science and statistics, like data analysis is, is kind of like, there's many ways like science. So when I analyze data or when you analyze data, you are going back and forth, making hypotheses, trying to test the hypotheses. I don't mean in terms of a formal hypothesis test, but in a scientific sense, like you have an idea that 
that some drug is going to do something. Well, how would I test that? I have to gather data to do this. And then I have to, then having done this, I have alternative hypotheses and I want to distinguish among them. And I, I do experiments just like in fourth grade science. But when I do data analysis, it's like that. Like I have hypotheses about the underlying process, or I have a hypothesis that I have enough data to estimate a certain thing. So I might do a little simulation study or whatever. It, it, it's this process of exploration. But when we're developing statistical methods, in some ways, it's it's more like engineering. Um, like you build a bridge, not for walking across once, but for thousands of people to walk across. And you want to anticipate the conditions under which the bridge will fail. It's funny because we think of science as being more pure and beautiful than engineering and engineering being like getting your hands dirty. But yet in some way, when I'm getting my hands dirty with data, it's like I'm, what I'm actually doing is very much like what scientists do, what we do as scientists. And Megan and I are both scientists as well as statisticians. Well, if you consider political science to be a science, right? Um, but then when we're doing this more like larger thing, more abstract thing, which is developing a statistical method, which we also do. And like just about every statistician, even practicing statisticians who are just working on individual problems do tend to be developing methods. Because even if you're working on one problem, usually your client um, is going to do it again on a slightly different different example. And that is like engineering. Um, Somehow engineering is, is in, in certain ways more general than science in that you're trying to anticipate these, these future uses. But when you look at descriptions in textbooks, including my own, of statistics, we don't really capture these things. We, we do tend to focus on the details. We give fairly linear workflows. Sometimes it's a cyclical workflow where you're allowed to go back and fix your model but it still tends to be linear in a way that actual science and engineering are not. Then when people write about real-world statistics, it just often comes across as very soft. Like, oh, yeah, you should be, like, don't forget, like, talk to your client, you know, listen to them, you know, don't be an asshole, like, <laughs> like that kind of thing. It's like too general, right? Like in what, in what sense is that relevant to statistics as compared to just relevant to general business consulting? So there's there is some gaps there in how we talk about what we do and, and how we teach what we do. So given that we aren't really clear on what we do, it's perhaps no surprise that the people we work with aren't so clear on it either. Yeah, can I just do a, a yep. follow-up to that? And I think the... the the um, methods development or like stats research and then the use of those methods within whatever discipline, like wherever that goes, I think there, there generally is too big of a gap between those. So I see um, statisticians turning out, well, for an academic statistician, you're expected to turn out new methods, right? Like, and get your papers out there. Like that's uh, kind of an expectation, at least um, in my experience, but there isn't then an expectation to um, put the time and effort that's needed to bridge that gap between the method and then how it's actually being used in practice. So I guess like an analogy, like you design the bridge, 
um, to be used. Um, hopefully, it can't be exactly used in the same way in every location. Andrew's used this analogy before for other things, but you can't just plop the bridge into any location. So, like, where where is that middle ground, and where's the statistician's role versus the researcher's role in making sure that that um, that that gap area is, I guess, more like solid and um, and actually time is put there, which does relate to the just. Where did the data come from and how are we using, um, you know, how, how much is being driven by the data versus methods and, and theory? Yeah, I guess, um, actually, it's funny that you were mentioning bridges because one of the ways that I like to think about um, applying some of these more statistical machine learning statistical models, because, you know, I tend to fixate on probabilistic machine learning, um, which is mainly, um, someone's going to come after me with this, but... A lot of Bayesian non-parametric models, I tend to like them. They're flexible, they're reasonable, um, they do well. Uh, but one of the ways I think about sort of the transition between sort of the these uh, theoretical models and actually applying them to real-world problems is it is actually like a bridge, but it's like one of those little Lego, like fixed-piece Lego bridges where they only fit onto certain, they only latch onto certain things, and they're like exactly a certain length long, which means that if it doesn't fit perfectly, you're going to have to start making accommodations for that. And one of the uh, questions that I would be interested in having people talk about a bit more is, uh, for example, like, do we want um, uh, do we want sort of methods where um, they encompass an entire sort of analysis, like data analysis stack, where um, so for example, a model that can accommodate um, uh, what, what, what we want, like header scedasticity, and um, a model that can accommodate um, uh, non-stationarity and things like that. And um, or whatever deviation from uh, Gaussian errors and Gaussian emissions that you would have. Um, versus, what about uh, stacking just a large number of smaller, uh, very like concrete analytical methods, and you stack enough of these on top of each other? And so the downside is that, of course, you know, there's no nice analytical understanding about what this stack of methods do when you feed them into each other. But at the same time, you do understand what's happening in every step. Um, whereas, for example, if you do have a more complex statistical model and you're less familiar with what exactly is happening at the inference step or you know what where your uh, model parameterization is going and how it's handling these things and how it's reacting, um, you know, again, you're choosing your poison about where you're losing understanding about how your model is interacting with the data. I didn't describe that well, but um, it is an idea um, that I've sort of been playing with obviously i fall into one camp which is on the more engineering side i'd like to just stack simple things on top of each other you know a simple uh kde method or something to remove uh, uh deviant erroneous data and then i put a gaussian and then i feed that into a gaussian process and then i take that gaussian process and uh do some quick you know assumption testing on it to make sure that it's um not totally crazy and then if it's not totally crazy then i see what that that Gaussian process says about the forecast and things like that. And so that seems a lot more simple than, for example, even something is slightly more difficult, like a heteroscastic Gaussian process and trying to deal with computational issues on that. Um, anyway, I've yet again stuck my hand out there. Feel free to bite. Go for it, Andrew. <laughs> no, no, you go, Megan. No, I don't, I don't know that I have a big bite to take on this one, but... <laughs> uh. Yeah, I, I've, I, I think I've been thinking, my colleagues and I have been thinking a lot about workflow lately. And 
like then when you know when you when you hear about something you start to see it all over the place right like you start <laughs> to notice it so once i we started thinking about workflow it turns out that um software engineers have been talking a lot about workflow for for the past 20 plus years it's it's been a, a big thing that i hadn't really realized um and i think at a meta level, thinking about workflows helped me to clarify my workflow and maybe say less stupid things about it and realize how my kind of philosophy of what I was doing was pretty naive. So it's it's actually interesting how introspection is so difficult, right? Like, and it's like a lot of things like you, like you go to the art museum, we like in New York, we have the Metropolitan Museum of Art and they have these beautiful medieval paintings and they look so unrealistic. And like some of it is, I obviously that was their style, but like maybe like, I don't know, like, I, I feel like I'm just going to sound really stupid here. Like at some level they knew it was unrealistic, but like it looked unrealistic to them in a different way that it looks unrealistic to us. I mean, there's a famous story of, of, um, you know, Picasso drawing, painting somebody and the person saying, this is horrible. It's so unrealistic. It looks nothing like me. And Picasso said, that's right. You're not really, you know, you're, you're not really two feet high and flat. And <laughs> so, so of course, like every painting is unrealistic and it's presumptuous for me to say that a painting from 12, the year 1300 has a kind of unrealism that's different. But what I'm getting at is that we have ways of describing the world and ways of describing what we do. And even our introspection um, will go along kind of routine thoughts. So people, it's, as a teacher, I've also noticed one of the hardest things to do is to get students to write exactly what they did. And I remember of also, I used to go to statistics conferences and it was kind of interesting, like people would give presentations and there'd be people who are doing very solid applied work. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way, like that's good. Like they, I don't always do solid applied work, although I try, but they would give a talk and they'd end up talking about some silly abstraction of what they were doing and not really just, and then when you ask what they actually did, they wouldn't be able to describe it that clearly. It's surprisingly difficult to do that. And partly because it's not so valued, we don't always have a way of talking about it. So I do think that discussions of workflow and that sort of thing, not always about I do it better than you or you do it better than me, but just trying to talk about these can actually advance things. It's it's perhaps shocking in retrospect. I mean, here I am decades into my career still uncovering like just very basic insights of how we do things. Yeah. Um, and that's thanks to the idea of workflow being in the air. It's giving us, given us a kind of awareness. Um, like it was always there, but like somehow it's like with that saying, like they discovered sex in the 1960s. I, I have a feeling it was still there before then, but. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, um, I, I uh, recently went through a process of actually trying to be extremely explicit about a, um, a data analysis workflow that I did. And it reminded me about a similar, similarly uh, suffering time that I had uh, during my doctorate, where um, essentially for uh, one of these, it's, it's essentially a mid-doctorate review, where they check to make sure that you aren't just completely nuts and lost in the wilderness. 
And there too, I had to write out my entire workflow specifically. So, and, uh, you know, you got things like it, you don't have to just use words. You can use diagrams and things like that, but the volume and specificity required to do something as simple as saying, here is how I segment, clean my data. Here's how I actually, um, program a continual prediction process and things like that. Um, it's it's not only very intellectually difficult, but it's also like pretty fatiguing because it takes long. And the volume that's required to describe that is easily as large as like anything that you have to say at the end. Um, and so I think that there's a challenge. And of course, um, I think there's some something of a um, a false belief that people are at a loss for space in the digital age. But you know, there still are things like page limits, um, and you know. Append, I guess things can go to appendices, but yeah, no, that, it is a very challenging thing. And I think that uh, just to get to a useful point that for maybe people listening, especially if you're early career, there is a value in writing these things out. Like people think that like publication is just for the sake of waving your own flag. Like, no, like if you never, if no one ever sees what you did, your mind will still benefit from the right process of writing because, um, the intellectual clarity required to not just write something completely muddled, the benefit that you intellectually will get from the writing process is about as good as anything. Like, I, I, I don't think that there's any alternative, just like there's no alternative to, uh, there's no, there's no alternative to coding other than just, you know, coding and understanding the specificity required for that. There's no intellectual alternative to things like writing and the intellectual clarity that that demands. Um, and I'm not sure if people all entirely appreciate the value that, that it has, which is why I think like bringing on people who have blogs, uh, for example, that there is, um, there's, there's a benefit to that, which is, you know, you spend your time, you have a significant continuous practice clarifying your thoughts. And I think that, um, the, the idea of the workflow and thinking about and everything that you and Andrew just said, uh, I mean, we can go get more philosophical around that in terms of just understanding what we're doing in practice. Like what is, what does our scientific practice actually look like and actually reflecting on that, um, which I feel like is a, uh, should be a characteristic of good science or scientific integrity. Like what, what are we actually doing in that process and can we communicate it to others? Not that it has to be this, not that it's the same for everybody, even within a discipline, but just going through that process, I think is really, in, is, is, we don't put enough, um, uh, yeah, we don't have a high enough expectation around as, that, I don't think, for science. As the saying goes, your most important collaborator is you six months ago and <laughs> your emails. <laughs> 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 well, and transparency too. I mean, I guess that's all related, right? So, like, it's reflecting on your own your own practices, and um, you can't really be transparent in what you're doing without that reflection. Which that is a key part of doing science as well. Yeah, I think it's also just maybe if this is uh, helpful to anybody, the quick thought that mm -hmm. um, this sort of like critical critical self evaluation is also helpful for you to understand where you can really contribute. So for example, I view myself as a scientist. I happen to be able to code. I can, I know, I know statistical models, but the fact is like, I'm, a, I'm not even a third rate mathematician, for example. Um, like I, I don't even really belong on that spectrum. Um, of course I learned the, uh, underlying 
I would consider the mathematical mechanics of what I do because that's important to understand the entire process. But at the same time, um, what I'm bringing to my field is certainly not uh, mathematical acuity in any real sense. Um, however, like it does mean that, for example, I'm not always spending my time um, in various like deductive ruts and um it allows me for example to be a bit more skeptical about some sort of like inductive claims that are that can be made and allow me to reevaluate those which is frequently very helpful um when uh there seems to be a limit on the uh, on the value that can be derived from analyzing data and then it turns out that for example you're simply proceeding on incorrect claims based on prior data analysis. And so like, it's one of those things where, sure, I might not be contributing in a great many areas, but there are certain sort of skepticisms and uh, critical reasoning areas where I have gravitated, and that is allowing me to provide my little bit of value into the world. And I guess, you know, maybe people are just being polite and like, oh, no, we need more mathematicians and things like that. Uh, feel free to say that. But yeah, it's it does help me at least clarify that, like, here's a place where I know that I can really iterate and generate value um, without making too many gross errors outside of what I do. Is there any value in that or is it? Uh... <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I think there is. A, I mean, you're, um, it kind of reminds me of just even in the, in my statistics um, graduate school experience, you know, you had, we had kind of these two cohorts of um, people who ended up there, like those who came right from math and like, mm-hmm. that's their like strong point. They love the theory. And then those that are coming from, um, a science background, like, like I was, um, I loved the math part too, but, um, I did have this other, other perspective. So it's a little different than you, but it's just so important to put those two, those two things together and have people that are doing, doing both of those. And really like we're asking, like we have to be asking ourselves how we're fooling ourselves, right? Like that really is like, like how how am I possibly fooling myself right now? And I can only I am realizing we can only answer that to a certain extent, right? Like mm-hmm. with our own knowledge. Um, and so, then yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I'd like to place this. So I'd like to kind of place this in this context of of of, of workflow in in the sense. So one way, okay. Imagine that we're we're. Think of yourself or the statistician as, a, as an AI, as a computer program. I mean, sometimes that's a, a useful bit of abstraction. So you're a computer program and your job, let's say, is you have, <clears throat> perhaps your job is to make some discoveries from data without like making wrong discoveries, or your job is to make a decision where your decision could be go, no go, or gather more data, like say things like that. And you don't want to fool yourself. So this, like, it takes it out of the kind of ego thing. What does it mean to say, I don't want to fool myself? Like, well, I want to avoid certain certain errors, like, which suggests that there's some implicit model for, for what these errors are. So I guess what I'm saying is that, because I I, that's saying, I mean, that's a... I, be, I agree. Like, like, like part of what makes something science is that you're willing to admit that you're wrong and that you are aware that you can be fooled and you try not to fool yourself. Like, of course, that's not just science. Like if you probably, I assume it's true if you're a trial lawyer that you don't want to fool yourself. You might want to fool the jury, but you don't want to fool yourself. It's like fooling yourself is a, is a kind of funny thing. Like, like, 
why would we ever want to? Except, of course, people have had very successful careers based on fooling themselves. So, but like, it's like you can't tickle yourself, right? And so, like, <laughs> I wonder what it means. Like, so if we'll talk about like various like renowned social scientists who we won't name who have developed successful careers based on fooling themselves. Like they're kind of willfully fooling themselves, like not looking at evidence that would make their theories look bad. Like at some level, they must know it, or is that a, an abstract level? It, it's just kind of a funny, it's a funny thing to think about. Like the decision, like we think of it as very much like an active thing, like people will fool themselves unless they try really hard not to. But if you kind of flip it around, there shouldn't be much of a motivation for doing it, which suggests that fooling yourself is a kind of active thing. It takes a lot of work to to like look away. Um, I don't know what to say about that. I guess, uh, I mean, maybe coming back to something you said at the early early on or just the overconfidence. Well, I'm putting it back into a kind of using stats perspective. But um, I mean, I even think that that like overconfidence in statistical methods and results without really interrogating the assumptions or really understanding how the model works. I mean, in my mind, that's like an example of fooling oneself without, like, it's unintended. It's not, um, it's just following the norms of the discipline, for example, without really thinking about the, the methods. But that is, like, how do you get someone to stop and think about whether that is, whether they are fooling themselves by but, using that method? I don't know. That helps. Consider a thought experiment, okay? So suppose you're a very good statistician and you're going through life and during your analysis, but somebody put a little malicious virus into your computer program, into your computer. And what it does is right at the end of the analysis, it, it takes your standard errors and divides them by two. <laughs> and like it's somehow it's a pretty clever program. So it, it does various intermediate calculations that way too. So such that when you do your analysis and all your standard errors are divided by two and you just don't know it, you don't realize, right? So... Like that would cause you to be overconfident, right? And you can say in some sense, this is what surveys are. Like opinion polls, like empirically, the the margin of error is about twice the nominal margin of error. So like people who take opinion polls too seriously, like, so how how would you deal with this? This thought experiment? And I I can think of like, I'm just, just thought about it now. So like, (laughs) who's to say, but I can think of two resolutions to this thought experiment. So, I mean, well, Two resolutions beyond just like you go through your life being overconfident all the time. Like, okay. So one rev- resolution is a kind of calibration argument that you walk into enough walls and you start to realize you need new glasses. So you're, you, this requires that you look back sometimes at your inferences and see how well you did. Like you can never, you, if you know, ne- you can't calibrate if you never um, reflect um, but like somewhere along the way, you're noticing that you're continually being wrong. And like, well, there's a famous story of uh, Paul Samuelson, the economist, who famous for writing that economics textbook for many years. And back in 1960, he had a graph showing that the Soviet Union was projected to catch up to the United States economically around the year 1980, or maybe it was 1990, something like that. That was the plan, 1990. Uh, because he was, they were using bad Soviet statistics. But so then, so I read about this that like 
the book kept getting updated and that graph was always in the book. And so he would like add things like saying how they had like bad weather, you know, like they had a bad harvest. So that's why they didn't catch up this year. Like there was always a reason, right? And he apparently never got around to correcting this. Even so, in the 1992 edition? Oh, uh, <laughs> I don't know if he was around in 1992. So I, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know the full history of it, but it was it was there for a while. And so what I'm getting at is one resolution is if you're in this situation with the demon in your computer that's dividing your standard errors by two, at some point you just adapt and you just start doubling your standard errors. Or, or And in some way that's like, people will do that. Like they know not to trust a paper published in a top journal that makes certain claims because we know that like somewhere there people are doing things wrong. The other way of dealing with it would be at a more theoretical level that you should be um, calibrated. You should be doing simulation-based calibration of your methods. So what you should really do is you should simulate fake data and check the coverage of your intervals. And so then, assuming you're in, in, unless your demon is really clever and decides not to divide them by two just then, you would see that your intervals are off. And that's happened to me. I've done this and found that my intervals were half as wide as they should have been. Like things happen, like we have bugs in our code. But I guess the point is that if we think of it, I like the thought experiment because we can talk about what does it mean to fool yourself. That's a particular way you can imagine fooling yourself. And then we can think about how to get get out of it. And that's like, I'm just really picking up on Megan's comment because I first was saying it takes an active effort to fool yourself and Megan is saying, no, it's easy to fool yourself by accident. Um, and so then like thinking about the longer, placing it in a time series and thinking about what yeah, that makes. I know I like your I like your example, and I didn't necessarily mean overconfident in terms of um, precision, though it could go that go that route. I mean, it could be just maybe overly trusting one's methods or not really understanding what's coming out of them, but trusting that what is coming out of them is what we want because that's what we've been taught. I think there's something yeah, the standard error demon. I just like it because it's a clean thought experiment. <laughs> no, I like it too, <laughs> and could be easily achieved in Excel. Um, but yeah, um, I think there is an element that's a bit deeper to this because, you know, like, there, there have been bits where, um, I, we, we, we've all worked with students trying to learn and, um, trying to get up to speed on things and essentially try to help them learn examples of critically evaluating their own work so that they don't hit as many walls going into the future. And, um, you know, there's a quick example where like, um, Basically, I, I had this uh, scenario where I had a student trying to fit a more uh, complex hierarchical model, and um, that um, effectively, um, and I'll remove some details from this just so that it's uh, sufficiently anonymous. But the the idea is that um, simple graphical checks of their uh, checks of the model versus the data would have immediately clarified that a uh, a portion uh, down the hierarchy was not being fit in any way, shape, or form in a correct way. And so it's, it's, it's like, you can look at this, and it's, it's not saying, um, it, 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 it's visually apparent. And however, it's just, it was impossible to uh, convince this researcher to say, it's like, well, let's remove the hierarchical element to it. Let's start, um, let's start with a simpler model. And instead of trying to fit all these things into a hierarchy and deal with all that extra complexity, why don't we just deal with each of these segments in turn 
it becomes a bit more of a small data problem, but it wasn't that much of a small data problem. So it isn't like saying, oh, we're now stuck just comparing like two points in, uh, on the line. It's there's a, there's a big old chunk of data in each of these things. And it's like, we could easily split this apart, do a simpler analysis. And only once we've learned how to uh, perform that simpler analysis in a robust automated way, because you know, in, in my field, if you can't automate a process, you might as well not do it. Like it, it's just not, and you're not in the game. There's no hand tuning when it comes to the ways in which I need to apply my work. And so it's like, let's, Try to really sit down and figure out how to automate this inference process first. And only once we've figured that out, then we can say, okay, what have we learned? Are we good enough here? Then should we build the next layer? And, you know, um, there's been a multitude of conversations like that. So it's, it's not specific to any one person. It's not even specific to a field. And it's nearly impossible to get people to pump the brakes enough to do this initial check. And so again, it's um, and uh, just to show that it's not like, I'm not going to, I'm going to agree with both of you who have also disagreed on on this bit, but it's like, um, there's an effort involved because these people are working hard. It's not, they're lazy people. They're, they're putting in 10 hour days, but they're putting in 10 hour days, hitting their head up against a wall because they refuse to take one step back. And at the same time, you know, they continue to do it, even though this evidence is there. Like literally we're looking at these bots and saying like, if if your if your distribution if this is the proposed distribution your data is all the way over in these other places, that's 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 not the right answer. Why can't we take a step back? And there is this refusal. Um, well, I, yeah, go on. Oh, sorry, Megan. You... No, I was just going to say that I have encountered that same um, story many times in many different disciplines. So I'll just like just throw that in there. And let Andrew. I'm glad to know because like I feel like a failure like that. I couldn't get people to do this, but anyway, go on. No, I, it's been a, a big a, you know, thing. I put a lot of effort into it. it, it there's like no doubt, like people. Th- there are certain you know, people are kind of slaves to intellectual ideologies, and so you there are things people won't do because they they don't think it's allowed. Um, and I mean, I, I remember years ago being upset with the Bayesians. I went to a Bayesian conference in 1991 and I went to a bunch of these posters and people are doing, I kind of focused on the applied stuff and over and over I would say, like, have does your model like fit the data? Could you try simulating replicated data from your model and comparing to your observed data? And nobody wanted to do it. And they had an ideology, which was that their models were uncheckable um, because they were, they were subjective. So first, there were kind of there was a technical error and a and a and a kind of philosophical error. So the technical error was that because although it's true that there are aspects of the model that were uncheckable and fundamentally unidentifiable, that doesn't mean that all aspects of the model were uncheckable. That was the the mathematical error. The philosophical error was was a kind of weird, like you know, kind of like I'm a sinner, so now let me become a mass murderer kind of <laughs> right? Like, yes, my model is subjective, but like a, ra- a kind of more natural approach to me is to say my model is subjective. All models are subjective. Thus, I have a true duty to check my model. But their attitude was my model is subjective um, and it's therefore beyond checking or not checking. You know, it's it's like... It's a matter of my religious belief, and I'm not allowed to check it. And so 
there was just an attitude. And then the tools that the Bayesians had at the time for checking models were extremely model dependent. Um, and, and so that kind of would, would make things worse. So, yeah, I don't know about your students. Like, I'm surprised to say that I'm surprised that they're not checking things. Like, it seems like that is much more a part of statistical textbooks than it used to be, but maybe not enough. It's true, like in, in papers, published papers seem to show very few model ch checks. I mean, we have sometimes we have this expression that, um, that like, um, people don't talk about, people don't talk about the models that didn't fit because like, and they don't, you don't put a model check in paper because if the model check doesn't fail, then it's like, then you don't need it, and it's just a footnote. And if it does fail, you shouldn't be putting that model in in the first place. So there's a very natural way that the, the false starts just don't show up in the literature. So in that sense, and e even in textbooks, like we try our best in our textbooks to, to talk about checking. But even so, you, you, like a lot of the stuff doesn't show up there for sure. That's yeah. my fault as the textbook writer. Yeah, I mean, I've I've made this I've made this uh, comment a few times before, like um the bit where uh, talking about uh, posterior predictive checking and things like that, where this is something where to me it seems, given the place where I came in, that it was sort of a one bout battle where essentially uh, there had been enough Andrew Gelman blog posts and books about it and things like that where. People no longer, at least this was not part of the like the Bayesian religion, where it's like the, this this goes against our core tenets. People accepted that this was um an acceptable and necessary aspect of Bayesian analysis practice. And so I don't think that was not sort of the readout that prevented this bit. It had to do something more with, I think, the need to have a sufficient level of model complexity in order to make your work interesting and things like that. And I'll say this. Um like as probably the biggest statistical mercenary that anyone's going to hear from talk for more than an hour, um, you know, model checking and things like that are extremely useful even for advanced methods. So even if, um, you know, identifying when something deviates from your assumptions, if you're if you're wanting to say, oh, you know, only the most sophisticated methods for me, you know, I'm I'm only going to do the most complicated analysis. Um, model checking is actually a very useful way to do that because that adds complexity, and you can be sort of when you're especially working in these automated analysis settings automating the model checking and inference in what you do in regard to those results is very important. It's very interesting. And it actually helps you build your models to become more complex and more interesting. So, um, you know, even if you're wanting to just be the most complex person on earth, gosh, if you check your models, that, that that's a pathway forward. And yet people ignore that too. We, we, I talked about that in my 2003 paper in the international statistical review, but we have to, I think Megan and I, we have another meeting at one thirty. Is that correct? Okay. Ah, so, and this was only supposed to go to one thirty. So yeah, no, but yeah, it's fine. Stop. Let Meg have the last word, and then then we can stop. No, I was just gonna just add one thing to the fooling you, so that I didn't add to Andrew's story. So when somebody else is saying, like Glenn just just um, described, like you might be fooling yourself. Like it looks like you're fooling yourself. Like that's something that we should definitely <laughs> take into account, which I think definitely gets to the science pseudoscience thing. Just to bring it back to the to the actual theme. Um, so that was the only other little tidbit I wanted to add on. Cool. 
Well, uh, Megan, Andrew, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And as always, I enjoy this conversation. I look forward to uh, some more down in the future. Thanks so much, Glenn. Bye. Thanks, Andrew. Hey, guys, it's Glenn. Thanks for your time today. I hope you liked today's episode. If you did, please consider smashing that like button. It's the single simplest, fastest way to make sure that YouTube shows this video to more people. If you really want to go crazy, consider subscribing or going to our website and joining the mail list. If you want to go totally crazy beyond that, forward this to a friend or colleague who you think might enjoy this too. We're a small channel and every bit helps. Our next episode will be coming out next week. So in the meantime, feel free to look around the channel and see other videos that might be of interest. As a quick disclaimer, the views expressed in the show do not represent anything other than the people saying those words, views, etc. like that. It doesn't mean anything about their employers or their employers' views or some thing about their employers or their neighbor's cat or anyone else not saying the words. And in fact, given that people tend to change their views when they're thoughtful enough, it might not even represent the views of the speaker by the time you're hearing the episode. So definitely come back and see if they've changed their views at a later date. They also don't represent the views of our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsors. You can check them out on our website.